Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. My guest this week is Ronald Kessler. He is an investigative journalist. He is the author of 21 non-fiction books. Seven of those are New York Times bestsellers. He's a former writer for the Washington Post. He's since done articles for the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and many more. Uh, what do we talk about? We talk about a handful of his books. Some of them include The CIA at War, The Secrets of the FBI, In the President's Secret Service, The Trump White House, Changing the Rules of the Game, The First Family Detail. Again, that's about the Secret Service. We go into a bit of the Secret Service training, what it takes to become a Secret Service uh, member or operative. I'm not sure what the word is. We talk about the Watergate scandal. We talk about exposés and investigative journalism. We talk about loads of things. It's a really great chat. It's a free-flowing chat. We're just covering all kinds of areas. I'm really grateful to have had uh, so much of his time. It's really, really great to uh, connect and uh, dive into these subjects. So uh, without further ado, here is the episode of The Giant Pod featuring Ronald Kessler. Here he is. Excellent. So yeah, this is uh, this is the giant pod. Uh, welcome. Basically, I talk to people I think are interesting or have had extraordinary lives or careers or are specialists um, in certain fields, and I think that you you pretty much fit a lot of that criteria. So I wanted to sort of get into it's sort of loosely biographic. So we'll talk about your start and your bit of your life and. And, and getting into journalism and stuff, and then I want to talk about some of your books, and and, uh, and then at the end we can maybe talk about what you think of the state of the world today, but um, okay. we will save that bit for the end, if that's all right with you. It's very unusual to actually let someone talk who's been interviewed. I went to Clark University in Worcester, Mass., and uh, I was on the school paper, and I did a story exposing discrimination against blacks in rental housing in the, in the area. I would uh, call uh, classified ads for apartments and I would say, uh, I'm a Clark student. Is it still available? They would say yes. And I would say, by the way, my roommate is black. Is that any problem? 40% said, yeah, that's a problem. This is way back in the, in the 60s. Right. And that was picked up by the local paper and that led to my journalism career because I just wanted to keep doing that, interviewing people, exposing wrongdoing, wrongdoing uh, rather than being told what to think and what to learn by professors. So I left Clark after two years, and I went to the Worcester Telegram, the Boston Herald, the Wall Street Journal in New York, and finally the Washington Post, where I was an investigative reporter for 15 years. And I sat next to Carl Bernstein, and every night Woodward would come over with uh, his Watergate uh, sources, and they would discuss uh, the latest story they're doing for the next day's paper. Uh, and so I, I was sort of, I had a front row seat to Watergate. Um, and uh, then I started writing books in 1985 and left the post. And I've written 21 books, uh, nonfiction, uh, about intelligence subjects and current affairs. Um, um, several of them have led to various uh, 
results from crusades. For example, uh, I exposed the fact that the FBI director, uh, William Sessions, was engaging in all kinds of abuses, and that led to him being fired by President Clinton. Uh, I also uh, revealed that the Secret Service had hired uh, prostitutes in uh, Colombia when Obama went to visit, and uh, that led to at least some some changes in the Secret Service. So that's what I like to do, and uh, it's fun, and I, I, I think I like to go for the truth, whether it's from the left side or the right side. And um, I especially enjoy the F- FBI subjects. I've written three books on the FBI. Uh, and one of them actually uh, uh, revealed uh, real information indicating that uh, Woodward and Bernstein's Watergate source dubbed Deep Throat was Mark Felt, uh, a top FBI official. And the way I knew that was I went to interview Mark Felt for one of my uh, books, The Bureau, and uh, his daughter with whom he was living in California said, you know, this guy Woodward came out here about a year ago. She wasn't even sure who Woodward was. And and he had his limousine parked 10 blocks away. And then he walked to our house. Well, of course, that meant no question. Uh, he would not have taken such precautions unless this were Deep Throat that he was visiting. And uh, right. a year later, Deep Throat came out and publicly acknowledged that he was, in fact, Deep Throat. And how big of a deal was that? Because I, I I wasn't around for the Watergate scandal. Um, but that's a big deal in American politics, isn't it? Or modern American politics. So how big of a deal was it that suddenly this this uh, operative known as Deep Throat has been sort of unveiled to the public? Well, it was a big deal because for, you know, ever since Watergate, people had speculated about who Deep Throat was and, and they, uh, uh, and it turned out that they really had uh, uh, very little idea. Uh, Felt was mentioned once or twice, but most often it was some other uh, person. And uh, so uh, a lot of people were proven wrong. And what was Deep Throat's role in the in the whole in the whole situation? They were the what were they? He he was the number two FBI official at the time, and he was in charge of keeping track of the Watergate investigation and what the FBI agents were finding out. So he he knew everything. It was just unbelievable. Woodward first met him when uh, they both were waiting for something at the White House and, and and Woodward struck up a conversation. Woodward, you know, is very bold as you can imagine. And, you know, a lot of us would have been uh, afraid to even try to talk to uh, or call the uh, number two uh, official in the FBI feeling that they would, you know, he would never talk to me. But, but uh, Woodward uh, is, uh, you know, always jumps into the fray and I have a lot, of, a lot of admiration for him. In fact, he was the uh, best man at, at our wedding. I was on his investigative team. And uh, so uh, I uh, have a lot of admiration for Woodward. You're a powerful man, Ron. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I just like to have fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so I'm, I've got a small list of some of your some of your books that you've written here. You've, like you said earlier, 21 non-fiction books, seven of them New York Times bestsellers. Uh, there's, there's a strong theme here. They're very presidential. They're very CIA, FBI-based, Secret Service-based. When did your fascination with everything presidential and you know high government um begin is this a childhood thing do you do you have strong memories of watching presidential speeches at home and, and just being uh, in awe of the you know how big a deal that everything is the pomp and the pageantry of it all no i i think it's more that i love to uncover secrets that are relevant and important and that's why i choose subjects like the fbi ci secret service and the white house uh, that that are uh, momentous and uh, secretive agencies that that are prone to abuse from time to time, and, and those are things I want to expose. But I also like to uh, reveal how they work because they are so secretive. Um, of course, now more secrets come out than than when I started in journalism, but still, there's so many uh, secrets, and 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 they are of course still subject to abuse, and so that's what is my guiding principle when it comes to choosing book subjects. If you had to start again, do it all again, would you Would you want to be part of the CIA? Does that part of you that wants to uncover secrets and investigate things, is does that part of you w- wish to be involved and in, to be an agent in that world? Or do you like that sort of that thrill of the hunt, that kind of trying to find trying to catch them slipping, trying to figure out what you can find? Is it that it's so sealed off and secretive historically that makes you so curious and, and fascinated in it? Well, I've certainly, you know, dreamed, <clears throat> dreamed of being an FBI agent or a CIA officer, but no, I would not want to do that because in my present position as a journalist, I'm free to uh, write and say whatever I think is correct and true. And that's not something that you can necessarily do in a bureaucracy. Uh, and and uh, so I, I'm a very independent person. Uh, I like doing exactly what I'm doing now. What is it about the, the CIA and the, and the FBI? You know, what is it that you, when you said you've, you've kind of dreamed about it, what, what are the, uh, what's attractive about these things to you? Well, certainly, you know, certainly the idea of, of tracking down and arresting uh, a spy, for example, within the CIA or, or within the FBI, like like uh, Robert Hansen, uh, is tremendously satisfying. And, and that uh, I would love to, you know, be a crusader and a superman and, and, and do all those things, uh, not to mention uh, learning about some of their methods. But... Uh, I, uh, I like exactly what I'm doing. I started in this arena uh, with uh, an article in a local publication in Washington called Regardies. The editor noticed a very small story in the Washington Post about a an embassy employee uh, in the Russian embassy or the Soviet embassy at the time uh, <clears throat> being expelled by the FBI uh, over over spying. And this editor said, gee, I wonder how they do that. Well, this this had never been explored before. I mean, nobody, nobody had ever done an article or a book that actually reveals how they go about doing this, uh, what what the parameters are. 
because it was so secret, you know, especially back then. And so I did this article and I got the cooperation of the FBI, uh, counterintelligence people. Those are the people who look for spies. And they uh, they shared uh, a lot of the secrets. After the story came out, there was some consternation. There was criticism within the FBI. We sh- you shouldn't have let him know all these things. Uh, but that really got me going. And, and uh, I- I've just enjoyed it ever since. So the first book you wrote, what was the first book you wrote about the FBI? It was the uh, Inside, was it called Inside the Bureau? It was actually called Spy vs. Spy. Ah. Uh, wife's time. My wife is wonderful. She's also a Washington, former Washington Post reporter. And uh, she wrote a book, by the way, called Undercover Washington about the about spying in Washington, undercover uh, uh, locations. Um, and she came up with the title Spy vs. Spy. And uh, it was simply on the FBI's counterintelligence program. And that really is still the only book just on that subject. And that went into how the FBI caught brand name spies like uh, Walker and Pelton and uh, uh, other uh, well-known spies. And since then, I've written, uh, I think I said, a total of three FBI books. And I've gone into other more recent spy cases, like Robert Hansen, who was an FBI agent who spied for Russia and um, and, and the Soviet Union, and uh, Aldrich Ames, who was a CIA spy. Um, and actually, you know, the most incredible story of all was about Carl Kosher and Hannah Kosher. That is not a brand name, but Carl Kosher was a Czech intelligence service officer who reported directly to the KGB during the Cold War and managed to get a job at a highly classified level in the CIA. And so he was uh, reporting to the KGB, uh, all these secrets from the CIA. Finally, the FBI did catch up with him and he was uh, traded for, he, he was sent back to Czechoslovakia. He was barred from ever coming back to the US. Uh, eventually, uh, he was traded for Sharansky. That's how high level he was. And uh, Carl and Hannah had a very unusual activity. They liked to go to sex orgies and sex parties. And part of that was actually to pick up information because some of the people attending these parties uh, were Defense Department employees or even White House employees, and they would, uh, you know, have sex and they would get together. And uh, there was an impl- implicit blackmail uh, involved because these people were not supposed to be doing that if they were uh, government uh, secret uh, at, at, with classified uh, clearances. Um, and I and my wife, Pam, uh, actually got to interview Carl and Hannah in Prague after they were uh, sent back. And that was before they were, uh, that was when, after they had been traded. So we spent a week running around, going to museums, interviewing them. Uh, Hannah is, is gorgeous, big blue eyes, blonde. Um, and uh, uh, he, he had actually compromised a, a uh, Russian spy by the name of Agorodnik. And when the KGB closed in on Agorodnik, Agorodnik said, yeah, I'll give you a confession, but I, please bring me my Montplanck pen so I can write with, uh, the confession. They did. Concealed within the pen was a cyanide pill, which the CIA had 
had, had provided for him. He took it and he died. Uh, that's how dramatic this story was. So that's, that's one of the stories that I relate in my latest book, The Secrets of the FBI. That's incredible, isn't it? The, I wonder what's going through their, their minds at that point where they're like, okay, well, this is it. Going to take the pill. Going to go. Well, uh, I, I think he felt it was preferable to, to you know, being executed or hard labor for the rest of his life. Uh, you know, people who choose to be spies and take that risk uh, understand that, you know, they could be killed. Uh, mm. or, they, or they may have to uh, make that decision about committing suicide. You know, they do it often for money, but, but also uh, because they believe that their own system is, is rotten. What sort of um, qualities or traits do you believe are common across all spies? I mean, you clearly seem to have a lot of knowledge in sort of espionage and clandestine um, deals and whatnot. So w- what are the common themes that you've seen across all, all, all spies? Because I know with like Hollywood, James Bond, he's, a, he's probably the most famous spy or Jason Bourne. There's a there's a psychopathic uh, thread going through them, uh, but they're obviously on the right side of history or their their psychopathy. So what what do you think is the? I think intelligence is probably a big one, but there has to be a certain amount of fearlessness and a lack of empathy to be able to get through those situations without you know breaking character or whatever. Mm. Well, it is incredible, you know, when you think of not only the risks, but the secret life that they had to, that they have to lead. And that, that goes for our own CIA officers as well, or, and KGB officers. Uh, those are the people who uh, do not have, who do have diplomatic immunity. So if they are arrested, uh, they're traded, they're not, they're not executed, as opposed to the people that they recruit, like a John Walker, uh, who 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 can be in prison? He's in prison or executed. Um, but uh, I think patriotism is is part of it for sure, and uh, a willingness to take risks way beyond anything we could imagine. I think, um, and uh, an attraction to the excitement of of uh, of being a spy of of. Uh, working undercover, uh, not uh, upset about having to lie to people all day long because their their real identity is kept is kept secret. Um, some of them are a little wacky, but most of them are you know very uh, upstanding people, and uh, a lot of uh, fascinating cases such as Vitaly Yuchenko, who defected from the Soviet Union, he was a KGB officer, very high ranking, and then he redefected. And there was tremendous controversy about why and whether he would be executed when he went back. And uh, I actually was able to interview him in, in Moscow after he, after he went back. Um, and uh, what happened was the CIA totally mistreated him, um, didn't treat him with dig- dignity, which is just unbelievable when you think of how valuable these people are and the risks they take. Uh, and uh, I expose that in my 
book, Escape from the CIA, there was, uh, you know, and the Russians, the Soviets at the time, um, didn't want to admit that he had, in fact, uh, defected. Uh, they're, they're bureaucrats just like we have bureaucrats, and, and they didn't want to admit that they were wrong to uh, advance him. And that's why he was not, he was not executed. He was allowed to live live uh, peaceably in in Moscow, uh, and uh, just just amazing uh, case. Do you find that some of these people have very similar backgrounds? Are they generally sort of familyless, or because they have to sort of they have to go off radar, don't they? I think I remember. Yeah, I, actually, most of them are married, and, and most of them. Uh, you know, he, he lied to their to their spouses, but in some cases they are allowed to to let the spouse in on the secret, but not the children. Um, and uh, so they're they're constantly uh, coming up with with uh, cover stories, you know, beyond anything I could ever imagine, to explain you know why they have to go out at night at, at midnight, and uh, and uh, it turns out that they're exchanging secret documents uh, in, in dead drops uh, in the middle of the woods. Uh, very, very amazing. The, um, and then, you know, when it comes to the FBI, uh, they've done a very good job of not only catching spies, but also uh, catching foreign terrorists. There has not actually been a successful uh, <clears throat> attack by a, a foreign terrorist network since 9-11. There have been lots of domestic terrorism incidents, as we see with this capital attack. Uh, there have been uh, attempts by foreign networks, but actually the FBI has gotten very good at rolling up these, these plots. And uh, one reason is that after 9-11, the FBI became very what they call prevention oriented. Instead of watching uh, a suspect uh, for years to try to develop enough evidence to bring it to court, they will take the attitude that we have to stop this plot before it happens, no matter what. And so they will they will use any any means. Maybe they won't arrest them for espionage, but or uh, terrorism. But they'll arrest them for some more minor case and and send them uh, send them back. Um, and and this has been a very successful way to do it. Another another change is that the FBI uh, put in what they call uh, tripwires. Uh, for example. Uh, they went to explosives manufacturers and uh, uh, other companies like that and asked them if they would report to the FBI any suspicious purchases, large purchases of explosives by someone who normally, you know, is, would not have any need for that. And that's been very successful. For example, that uh, allowed the FBI to roll up a plot to blow up George W. Bush's home in Dallas, Texas, um, and uh, has uh, led to many other uh, plots. And another secret of the FBI, which, which I just love, is how they break into homes and offices to plant bugging devices without getting caught and shot as burglars. Just unbelievable and equally unbelievable is that the FBI actually let me in on these secrets uh, on the record 
four chapters of, of my book, The Secrets of the FBI, go into how they do it. And it's a secret team called Tactical Operations, which is a euphemism for bugging and bugging and spying. <laughs> uh, and uh, these secret teams all have uh, cover stories. And if, if they're uh, stopped for speeding by a police officer, they'll they'll have some uh, fake license, you know, that so that they don't actually have to be prosecuted. Um, they will, for example, if let's say they want to put bugging devices in uh, the Russian embassy. And of course, this is all court ordered. It's all done lawfully. Um, they will stake out the embassy for a few weeks before the break-in and they'll watch to see who goes in, who goes out. Are there any dogs on the premises? If there is a dog, they will take a photo and show the photo to a veterinarian on contract and he will prescribe just the right amount of uh, sleeping potion that agents will shoot into the dog with a dart gun when they go into the embassy. And then at the end of the break-in, they will shoot shoot him up again to wake him up because they don't want to have any sleeping dogs left around. Um, <laughs> and uh, they, they plant these bugs that are, of course, incredibly small. They actually showed me one, which was the size of a postage stamp, literally not much thicker than a postage stamp. It could record for 20 hours or transmit as you wish. Um, and uh, it's uh, one in one case, um, they, the FBI wanted to bug a mob hangout in Philadelphia. Mm. So how do they do that? Well, they didn't want to go in the uh, back door because that could be booby-trapped. However, the uh, this installation it was it was a, an electronic store but it was really a mob hangout um it overlooked an all-night bar so how do how's the fbi going to go in the front door uh without being seen by people in the bar what they did was they rented a metro bus a local bus and they got in the bus and the bus went around the block and uh j- dropped off the uh agents in front of the uh, front door and then stayed there so that the bus blocked the view of people <laughs> at the bar. However, uh, the bus went by uh, a bus stop on the way and these two people from the bar who were waiting were outraged that the bus didn't stop to pick them up. And they <laughs> ran into the bu- they ran to the bus when it stopped and ran into the bus and uh, the agents didn't realize that they don't belong with them because the agents were either from this tech, uh, tech ops or tactical operations team or from the local field office. So they didn't know that these agents are not one of them. But then some of the agents started taking off their weapons, long guns, you know, pistols. Uh, and then these guys, my God, they became frightened and they started <laughs> ringing, let me off, let me off. <laughs> And the, the, the agent who was driving the bus said, hey, guys, stop bothering me. I'm, I'm having enough trouble by driving this bus. But then finally, he did realize that they didn't belong. That, belong. Uh, he opened the doors. They went running out the door. They went running down the street. We never heard from, the, from them again. They probably thought it was all a nightmare because they drank too much. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, the FBI was able to plant bugs in that location. That's amazing. That's that's amazing. Um, tell me about the uh, is it the banditos? 
the uh, no. the way they got them. The Mandino's case was a, a classic undercover operation. And, and by the way, under Jacob Hoover, of course, they never had such such things. Hoover thought, you know, if they if they go undercover, agents would be co-opted, and uh, and and for, furthermore, he was very picky about dress. He he could never uh, imagine a, having an agent uh, grow a beard, for example, or, or going around uh, in, in anything but a suit and tie with a white shirt. Um, but in the Bandito's case, uh, this was a gang that engaged in all kinds of uh, crimes, and uh, including kidnapping. And uh, they would hang out at, at a bar. And so what the FBI did was they uh, got agreement from, a bar, from this bar that they would hang out at. They would pay the bar uh, to do this. And the agents would pose as bartenders, and they would make uh, drinks for the for the banditos. Meanwhile, they would be bugging their conversations, and uh, this, of course, was uh, bugs that would be on their on their person, uh, but also bugs that were planted in in the bar. And so they developed enough in, uh, evidence to arrest the banditos, and that was the end of the banditos. And what, what? Tell me about because the barman was was in on it, right? As an agent, all the staff working the bar were agents. Yeah, the owner uh, was in on it, and uh, but the agents would replace either replace the bartenders, or in some cases, they would keep the bartenders. Or it was a combination, right? And 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 there was something about they would try to give because they got quite tight with these these barmen who were undercover. The, the gang members would try and give them gifts, which, of course, they're not allowed to receive on, on duty, I guess, which would... Um, why aren't they allowed to receive gifts? Is it because it might may be seen as uh, bribery or some sort of, um, sort of mm. like, genuine developing friendship? There may be some sympathies that come out of that. Um, Asians would be allowed to accept gifts, you know, as long as they disclosed before him to the Bureau that they were going to accept these gifts as part of the case. And then, of course, they would give the gifts to the Bureau or whatever. Um, it does get sticky when going into a uh, drug ring and and in some cases uh, the agents are expected to ingest the drugs. Mm. Uh, and they did get some kind of permission to to you know just take a little bit, co- little bit of cocaine and then they're they're tested by the bureau afterwards, and they're watched by the bureau afterwards. But that is uh, one problem, and that's one another reason why J. Edgar Hoover would not allow these undercover operations until much later in his tenure, which is almost fifty years. Uh, and finally, actually, uh, despite the fact that that you know he really was a racist, he he gave these off the record comments to uh, newspaper editors, and and they were just one one racist comment after another. But um, eventually, Robert Kennedy, when he was attorney general, pressured Hoover to go after the Ku Klux Klan. And he did, and very successfully, using undercover operations where agents would you know, befriend a Ku Klux Klan member, pretend to join the Ku Klux Klan, and then record what was going down and, and, and uh, uh, record the activities. 
And the result was that the FBI actually wiped out the Ku Klux Klan, uh, despite the other side where, where Hoover uh, uh, unjustly and, and illegally uh, conducted surveillance of Martin Luther King uh, for, no, for no good reason whatsoever. So you said they got rid of the Ku Klux Klan, but they're, they're definitely still around, aren't they? So was there some sort of resurgence or was there enough of them left that they were over, able to rebuild over time? Yeah, you know, at, at this point, they're, they're just a, a joke. You know, they'll show up at some parade or, you know, some uh, uh, demonstration. And, uh, but, but in terms of actually uh, conducting any uh, criminal act, you know, every now and then they might, but, but then they're arrested. You know, so they're not any kind of threat whatsoever. So they're not basic, they're not the organized um, unit they used to be. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing a documentary about a undercover, uh, I think he was a police officer. Maybe he was FBI. He was some sort of high-ranking sort of police officer. He went into one of these biker gangs, and he, he was presented with a... Um, a situation where they said, "Oh yeah, do some coke, do some drugs." And this is before, like you said, they they gave the the agents some leniency, leniency, and uh, he said he had to uh, he had to bend over on on the table, pretend to uh, snort it with one hand while move. Well, no, he had to use one hand, pretend to snort it, and then move it all along the table, and then push it off the end of the table into his other hand, which seems like the, you know, the world's lamest illusion magic trick, doesn't it? And they actually fell for it. And he actually, you know, he didn't have to take any drugs. His, his, um, his investigation was not compromised. Um, cause I think the, 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 the place they were in was bugged. So there was no way he could have done it off the. Oh, yeah. I, I hadn't heard of that, but certainly that would be uh, a very, uh, approved, uh, uh, technique to <laughs> continue to be an undercover uh, person. And eventually I think they pulled him out because he was getting a little bit too deep into the, into the life, I think. Which yeah. brings me on to Donnie Brasco. Did you, did you, what do you know about the Donnie Brasco sort of stuff? Is that a common uh, occurrence with undercover work that, you know, at some point they say, look, we got to pull you out because you were literally just becoming what you're chasing. It, it certainly is a problem, no question. You know, and beforehand, uh, they they try to choose agents who are very uh, stable and uh, you know are not going to fall for some of these things. But 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 that is absolutely a problem, no question. And how does the uh, the FBI and the CIA differ? Because I think because over here in the UK, I think a lot of people get them fairly confused. Um, they do two very different jobs, don't they? FBI and CIA. CIA. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, you know, with, with the FBI, it's all about law enforcement. It's all about um, <clears throat> bringing cases to court and uh, documenting everything, uh, as opposed to the CIA, which is the opposite. When they operate, you know, in, in a foreign country, they, they break the laws of that country uh, every single day. So uh, that's a problem because, again, a CIA officer could, <clears throat> could start to um, think he can break the laws in the United States as well, or of course spy for the other side, which 
we see. Um, so all these all these uh, positions are uh, very uh, dangerous in terms of, of you know what the result can be. But speaking of dangerous, you know, the Secret Service uh, is out there every day taking the chance that they're going to be killed uh, when uh, the president holds a rally. Of course, you you see them with their pins and their and their little uh, squigglies in their ears. And uh, some of them wear bulletproof uh, vests, some of them don't. Uh, and uh, but they're there's there are sitting ducks for for an assassin. If if uh, an assassin is going to go after the president, they certainly would also go after the agents. Um, and uh, their Secret Service has had problems with corner cutting and and not keeping up with technology and and covering up things, such as I mentioned. Uh, when uh, Obama went to Colombia and uh, the uh, agents hired prostitutes. Uh, but generally, they've had a very good record um, and um, they've learned a few things. For example, the reason that, um, that Lee Harvey Oswald was able to kill JFK was that agents wanted to ride on the rear running board of his limousine in Dallas. <clears throat> but JFK was very, uh, like all politicians, uh, uh, aware of uh, optics and thought this looked like too much security. And he refused to let them ride on the rear running board. If they had been on the rear running board after the first shot, which was not fatal, those agents would have jumped on JFK, pushed him to the floor, and he would be alive today because he, they would have protected him from the second shot, which was fatal. And another, uh, another example of what really uh, goes on and the type of thing I like to uncover <clears throat> is in the case of the Reagan attempted assassination. Mm. Uh, the fact that he was going to be speaking at the Washington Hilton appeared in the Washington Post and, Lee, uh, and uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, the assassin read this went Hinckley, went to the uh, uh, Washington Hilton, and as Reagan came out of the Washington Hilton, he, uh, Hinckley was within 15 feet of Reagan and had not been screened and shot him. And uh, the, the bullet went within a, an inch of Reagan's heart. And the reason that uh, Reagan was allowed to come out like that uh, without any uh, magnetometer screening, et cetera, is that the Reagan White House staff pressured the Secret Service to allow Reagan to come out to, you know, do a little uh, photo shoot for the, for the cameras. Uh, that is why he was shot. And again, this was covered up. The Secret Service lied about it, but it's in my book, uh, The First Family Detail. And if, if say, I wanted to, say I woke up tomorrow morning and I go, you know what, I want to join the Secret Service. I probably can't because I'm, I'm not a U.S. citizen. But let's just say hypothetically, what sort of, um, pe like, this, like the spies question, what sort of people are they generally hiring? What are the qualities they're looking for? Are these ex-special forces guys, ex-police, ex-close um, protection guys in maybe private security firms. What what's the 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 skill set of these guys? Yeah, about a third of them are former military, 
and then a lot of others are former police officers, not not private security. Um, and then there are others who who are none of those. And and in this in those cases, they really are patriotic because they understand that they may have to take a bullet for the president. And what can be more important than protecting our president if we're American citizens? Uh, you know, uh, an assassination nullifies democracy. Uh, so that's the type of person that that takes that job. And uh, uh, of course, they go through training. I went to the training center with my wife, Pam, saw how they uh, uh, do various scenarios. And, and uh, the key is, first of all, to do advanced work if they're going to if the president's going to speak, let's say in a hotel, the agents will uh, scope out the hotel. They'll have dogs sniff out, sniff for uh, explosives. They'll locate uh, secret exit, you know, exits that are not that obvious. Um, they'll uh, take account of any uh, firehouses nearby so that they can escape if they need to some to a firehouse. The key is always to get the president out as quickly as possible, not to engage in some gun battle. But um, in addition to their pistols, they also have what are called counter assault teams who have uh, long rifles and uh, are there uh, in case there is a confrontation. In addition, there are counter sniper teams that appear on the rooftops. So if someone comes out of the Washington Hilton, if the president comes out, they will be there on the rooftops to uh, take out any possible assassins. Uh, there's also uh, the issue of uh, food. If the president's going to eat uh, in a hotel, the agents will check out the backgrounds of the chefs and the waiters. Uh, Navy stewards will serve the food to the president. Uh, agents will watch as it's prepared in the kitchen. And then in the hotel itself, the Secret Service will rent the floors below and above where the president's going to be staying, as well as the whole floor where the president is staying. They'll check out the room, the suite where he's going to stay uh, for bugs. Mm. Uh, they'll take apart, you know, paintings. They'll they'll look under carpets. Uh, they'll put bulletproof material on the windows. They'll take the TV out and they'll replace it with their own TV, which is not uh, full of bugs. <laughs> uh, so very intricate and very different from the JFK days when, when there was really no advanced preparation like that. So do you think when uh, a hotel hears that, you know, uh, Biden is coming to town and he's going to be making some sort of speech or an address, do you think they think, oh, for God's sake, here we go, because they're in there, they're ripping up the carpets, they're pu- pulling the paintings off the walls. Do they leave it as as they found it? You know, do they sort of... Bill, you know, does the, uh, the the government pick up the tab for that? It must be a ball ache. Yeah, no, they, they, they do have to leave everything as is. And, you know, in the case of paintings, they would actually x-ray them, you know, they wouldn't tear them apart. Uh, the carpets, they would replace. Uh, and and that's, that's very much part of their job, you know, and that's why they rent these locations, uh, such as I mentioned, uh, from Biden when he was vice president and the toilet facilities for the Kushners so that they can maintain their operations without interfering with the people that they're protecting. Right. So um, give me some juicy Secret Service 
uh, anecdotes. Give me some th- some juicy gossip that you've uh, you found throughout your research sure. when you were writing your book. Well, that's certainly one of the reasons that I love to do my two Secret Service uh, books, In the President's Secret Service and The First Family Detail, because agents are like secret surveillance cameras. They see everything that goes on with the first family, and uh, uh, they uh, and, and it's often incredible. Uh, for example, um, Hillary Clinton is so nasty to her agents. She's still protected because she's... A, uh, the wife of a former uh, president, so nasty that <clears throat> being assigned to her detail is considered a form of punishment within the Secret Service. She <laughs> will just blow up with them for no reason uh, and uh, didn't doesn't want military or police uh, at her events. Uh, just just has this hatred uh, of of uh, law enforcement. Uh, on the on the other side, Obama and Michelle are very considerate of agents, respect them. Uh, Trump uh, is as well, and the Bushes are as well. <clears throat> um, the Bushes' two kids were, were were difficult though when they were teenagers. Jenna and Barbara Bush, uh, they would actually try to lose their agents. You know, they thought that was great fun. They didn't like to be protected, even though the agents would dress up like teenagers. They would dress in in uh, jeans, uh, but uh, Jenna especially would even uh, try to try to lose them. Uh, as she left the White House, <clears throat> she wouldn't tell them when she was leaving. They would have to do surveillance of, of her car to find out when she was leaving. And then she would actually try to go, th- she would actually go through red lights trying to evade her agents. So that was, <laughs> and then, you know, Bush didn't, didn't uh, side with the agents when, when the agents complained. Uh, he sided with Jenna, so uh, a lot of a lot of unforeseen difficulties in in being agents. But here's here's a really incredible story. Uh, when George H. W. Bush was going to uh, campaign in Enid, Oklahoma, this was his second campaign. Uh, the agents went out and did their usual advance work, and they checked with local law enforcement. Are there any threats out there? And local law enforcement said, you know, there's this uh, psychic in town who has just been incredibly accurate uh, in helping us. She has actually uh, brought us to the graves of murder victims. Uh, She's predicted all kinds of things that turn out to be true. And she said that she sees Bush being assassinated by a sniper on an overpass uh, as he's going back from his speaking engagement to the airport. So the agents, you know, were embarrassed to take this uh, seriously, but they did. <laughs> and they went and interviewed her and they, they said, you know, can you show us where the uh, presidential plane is gonna be and where the limousines will be? And she said, yeah. And so they went out to the Air Force Base and she said, she said that, that's where the backup plane is and that's where uh, uh, the limousines are going to be or, or are already, and and she was she was right, and so she and she also said when Bush comes out of the Air Force One, he's going to be wearing a sport jacket and a sport shirt, and they they thought that's crazy. He always wears a suit and tie, so again they didn't take it too seriously, but they did tell headquarters, and then the next morning, Bush came out of Air Force One and he was wearing a sport jacket and a sport uh, shirt. No. And so, 
really, this is true. And this is on the record from one of the agents who, who, who was there. Um, and so a, a shiver went down their spine and they changed the motorcade route back and forth so that it would not go under any overpasses. Yeah. And of course, he was not uh, harmed. He was not told about it at the time. He read about it for the first time in my book. Uh, people always say, well, did they go see if there were any snipers on any overpasses? No, they didn't. They were just concerned about protecting Bush. So Bush has read your book. Yeah, I sent it to him. You know, I, I, uh, I got cooperation from the first Bush family for my book on Laura Bush. So uh, I was able to, uh, to get to, to know them. That's amazing. That reminds me, that, that sort of psychic thing reminds me of a story of my great-grandmother. She read, uh, she was reading the local newspaper, and in the local newspaper there was a young couple, happily married, newlyweds. And she did this thing with, like, tea leaves where, depending on how the tea leaves sit in the bottom of the, of the, uh, the mug uh, or the cup, um, it, 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 you read them somehow. I'm not sure how you do it. I've never done it. But her interpretation of, of what she was reading was saying death because she wanted to see what their future held. And it said death. And she thought, no, this, this can't be right. So she did it again. And it said death again mm. and and the uh the bride died and they buried her in her wedding dress wow oh my god weird yeah strange right. right do you are you a believer in in these things or um like in the cia or or, or any government things do you, do you ever get into the whole do you ever trace chase the aliens thing or the men in black thing or whatever no. do you ever like no, I, I I don't get into any of that right-wing conspiracy stuff, but but in the case of psychics, um, as you can tell from that story, they actually have turned out to be right, and, and law enforcement does consult with psychics. Uh, so however it works, we don't know, but, but uh, they definitely can be valuable. Um, I did the first story about the FBI's profiling program, criminal profiling program, back in 1985 at the Washington Post. Um, and, uh, of course, now it, the term has taken on a pejorative meaning, but real FBI profiling is very, very helpful in coming up with a suspect, uh, just from little clues and, and then tracing that back to previous cases and what that might mean. Uh, they're able to narrow the focus of, of an investigation and, and uh, you know, they'll say the, the uh, perpetrator uh, lives nearby the perpetrator is between the age of 20 and 30. Uh, the perpetrator, uh, uh, you know, went to have a hot dog after. Not, <laughs> not quite like that, but but uh, a lot of fascinating clues that, that have led over and over again to arrests of, of murderers and serial killers and others uh, who break the law. And for any listeners who want to know a bit more about FBI criminal profiling uh if you have netflix go and watch the the show mind hunter mm. because that essentially um chronicles the 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 beginnings of uh that um department i guess it was a department wasn't yeah. it that yeah. was Basic always fighting Quantico. for funding and yeah yeah it, it is based at quantico virginia where the fbi training center is and as uh, in doing my books the fbi 
let me sit in on classes there and and uh, gave me firearms training at the uh, at the rifle rifle range. Uh, so uh, I, I really got to to experience some of what they do. So give me an example of um, because I think that the profiling stuff is really fascinating because it's essentially you're creating a psychological. Um, it's guesswork, isn't it? But it's sort of deduction. So you, you're looking at where the, maybe if we're talking about a serial killer and you'd look at the methods of of execution, the time of day they do it, the kinds of places they do it, and then they, they would maybe try and triangulate, you know, they'd look at all the different places the crimes have been committed and see if there's any sort of, you know, or they must be sort of in this area because they're never committed any more than 10 miles away from this town, let's say. Yeah. And then they, they get to figure out whether they're black, they're white, if they've got may, maybe religious beliefs, um, if they still live with their parents, what sort of job they'd have. How do they manage to be that um, that precise? Mm. Um, you know, I haven't checked in on that subject re- recently, but... Um, you know, it, let's say uh, just for, by the method of uh, of murder, um, one type, you know, is it someone who who uh, sticks around afterwards and and uh, and uh, you know takes takes food from the refrigerator? Um, the typically after committing a murder. Uh, uh, a serial killer will be so exhilarated that that he or she, that he—it's always a, a he—will um, uh, will act in an aberrant way so that the family, you know, his family may notice differences. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I I would have to go back to my book to to remember some of the details of this, yeah. but but it's a combination of you know. Looking at the crime scene, looking at the method of uh, of murder, uh, and comparing that with previous cases and and uh, and what they what they led to. Because you know, if you if you were so if they generally sort of strangulations uh, are considered to be crimes of passion, aren't they? So they're generally linked to um, adultery or killing of girlfriends, mistresses spouses whatever um whereas if you shoot someone it's considered to be slightly colder isn't it and more disconnected because it's not as it's not as physically um involved yes let's say and these are all the the clues they use uh i find that really fascinating i absolutely love that show like i said mindhunter on netflix um how much of that i don't know if you've seen it how much of that show is sort of fiction in, in, in how much sticks to the, the timeline. Yeah, I haven't watched it. You know, I rarely watch uh, FBI uh, scenario, uh, you know, uh, recreations because uh, invariably they're not correct and that just irritates me, you know. They annoy you. <laughs> Why should I want to know the real story, you know? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. You, were, uh, you were there for it. Um, so what what is the, the book you'd say you're probably most proud of? What's the one you, you, you had the most fun with? And if you could do a sequel to it, you would go and do another yeah. one. You know, it's like asking which of your children is your favorite. <laughs> I loved every one of them. Uh, and uh, I loved uh, pursuing uh, everything that I, that I tracked down. 
But one thing I am proud of, one of the things I'm proud of is when I was at the Washington Post, I did a story revealing that the DAR, the Daughters of the American Revolution, um, refused to allow a black woman who had the correct lineage going back to the Mayflower, uh, refused to allow her to join because she is black. And I interviewed the president of the DAR and she basically said that outright. She said, you know, not everybody can be invited to parties. Uh, you know, we, we choose uh, based on, on a lot of criteria and, and that could be one of them, that she was black. Well, that was a page one story in the Washington Post that led to tremendous changes in the DAR. The president had to resign. Uh, and the woman, Lena Ferguson, the black woman, was admitted. Not only that, but she was made uh, chairman of the uh, uh, scholarship committee. Uh, the DAR had to implement all kinds of uh, procedures to encourage blacks to join. Uh, and so, uh, that's that's uh, one of the things I'm proud of, proud of. So you have a bit of a like a civil rights theme throughout your career, don't you? Because you you mentioned earlier in in, in your beginnings in was it a college newspaper you said you were yeah. writing for? Yeah. You know that you were fighting for their for their rights and equality then, and exposing racism, and I guess it's systematic racism, isn't it? Uh, that you've dealt with in a uh, way. I don't know about that term. The, the, it certainly was racism. It certainly was widespread, given that you know forty percent of the people I called said it would be a problem to to have a black roommate. And right. you know, I think that's the best. But way the, to put the fact that they would have had the the power to do that to to grant someone uh, that you know a room or or a building you know to rent something to the, the fact that they had the choice to say yes or no based on their personal bias and bigotry would that would be evidence of a, of systematic racism wouldn't it or it being allowed to happen yeah that's right yeah. And, and you know there was there were discrimination laws and and the massachusetts commission against discrimination began an investigation after my story ran and they did i think they did actually try to uh take some uh, measures against the people that I named in the story as saying, no, I won't rent to a black person. The term was Negro back then. Um, but uh, that, that uh, you know, it's not like that today. Th things have changed a lot, but, but certainly it exists. And are moments like that the sort of the proudest moments of your your career? Or, or, or do, you, um, do, you, do you take more satisfaction from something that's sort of not bringing down the man, but something a little bit uh, more um, salacious or not, maybe not salacious. That's not the word. When you re when, when someone from the CIA gets a, a wrist slap because of something that you've found out, does yeah. that bring, do you get a bit of a buzz off that? Or do, would you rather what you do have a some more of a social impact? Like, like what you just mentioned with the DAR. Well, it's a combination. Whatever is a good expose, whatever is, you know, revealing, uh, whatever reveals uh, wrongdoing or something that needs to be changed. Uh, probably the biggest uh, expose I did was of William Sessions, I mentioned before, uh, the FBI director, and and he he was just abusing his position right and left. Uh, 
using FBI resources for personal gain and uh, uh, allowing his wife to uh, to have access to classified information. It was just just unbelievable. And and uh, I exposed that in my book, uh, the FBI, the the world's most secret, uh, world's most powerful law enforcement agency. And it, it took a while before he finally was forced out by President Clinton. You know, he, he didn't uh, want to resign and um, a Justice Department investigation was started, but but that was certainly one of, you know, the biggest thing that I ever exposed. And your newest book, or your latest book, is the uh, the Trump White House Changing the Rules of the Game, now, and, and at the top of the book, it says it boasts that it's one of the one of his earliest on the record interviews as as, as president. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it was the only interview he'd given for a book as president. And I've known him for two decades. Uh, I first got to know him and Melania when I did a book on Palm Beach called The Season, which, uh, boy, that was fun. Just, just going to cocktail parties, drinking champagne. Uh, and uh, and that, in, in a way, is also a secretive uh, society because they have what they call the old guard, which is very blue blood and and uh, uh, anti-Semitic and uh, certainly anti-Black. Um, and uh, so I got to know Trump back then. And uh, on the way down, he, he flew my wife Pam and I on his plane on the way down to Mar-a-Lago to spend the weekend. And on the way down, he imitated the nasal constricted tones of these blue bloods condemning his club Mar-a-Lago because it admits blacks and Jews. And some clubs in Palm Beach to this day, would you believe, do not admit blacks or Jews. They're allowed Jesus. to get away with it because they, they don't have any federal involvement. They're just private clubs. And uh, so I exposed that in, in the book, uh, the season. Um, and so... Uh, I got to know uh, at least one side of Trump, but as we, as we know now, there's another side that uh, is quite scary. So, would you say, and I'm and I'm not, I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to catch you off guard or catch any sort of like uh, sound bites that you know that would misrepresent you here, because I, I know that you must be wary of some journalism, but. Um, the last few weeks of Trump's presidency with the, the capital, uh, the siege on the capital and the, or the insurrection, did your, did your opinion of, of Trump change in those, in those months and weeks uh, while all that was happening? Was there a part of you that yeah. said, this is not the man I knew? That's right. You know, I, I certainly knew and did write about in that book, The Trump White House, some of his other flaws, you know, lying, serial lying, and and uh, uh, attacking uh, law enforcement at times unjustly. Although in some cases it was it was uh, it was uh, valid, um, but no, this was off the charts. Uh, not only uh, the rally itself, but but fabricating the story that the election had been stolen, putting that in these people's heads. And then uh, the rally itself, saying go to the Capitol fight. And then uh, as as the violence was occurring, and he was watching on TV, not even trying to call him off uh, and saying uh, go home. Uh, that I, I you know 
that uh, I think everybody is 100% universally against that, except you know some of these crazy people. So uh, that uh, that uh, <laughs> was was uh, a bridge too far for me. Mm. So tell me about the tell me about this interview in this book because this this book is what two two years old now. Yes. So he was in the slap in the middle of his presidency. Um, so how does that come about? How how do you go about securing the uh, the the is it the only still currently the only well it has no, to be it's since then he did an interview with one word for his book but right. at the time it was the only one okay uh, so tell me how right. that comes about how set the yeah. set the scene for me tell me how you go about interviewing a president especially a president like Donald Trump who is um, unpredictable to say the least um, yeah. you know ever since I did get to know him two decades ago. I, I had kept in touch with him. I did stories about him. I did interviews with him. Back in 2011, I did a story headline, Don't Underestimate Trump for President. And I'm uh, so a little proud of that um, in terms of you know predicting that he would run. Um, and uh, so I, I kept in touch with him and his people and uh, Eric Trump and, and uh, some of the others. Uh, and uh, he would let us go to Mar-a-Lago. Mar we would pay for uh, meals and, and parties, but but we uh, we were able to go once or twice a year, and I would see him there. So I, I kept in touch, and, and then the interview took place at Mar-a-Lago, uh, and I had been trying to get an interview through the usual means without success, but uh, he was having dinner with Melania and a few other people, and we were having dinner with other friends nearby, and Pam and I near the end went up to him and uh, asked for an interview, and he agreed. And at first he said, you know, let's arrange it tomorrow. And then Melania said, you know, why don't we just get our body man who was there, you know, and uh, and he can arrange it. Because, you know, I think Melania likes us and we like her. And uh, and then he said, Trump said, no, let's just do it now. So, so we went off in a corner of the room and I turn on my recorder and uh, did an interview for about a half an hour. And uh, he didn't say anything startling, but but it certainly added to the book. And are you, although, although you've said, you know, you've known him for a couple of decades, 20 years at this point, um, are you nervous because he's the president? Does that make you see this person slightly differently? Or is he sort of like, you know, your old acquaintance, uh, Donald? That's right. Um, you know, I wasn't nervous. I don't know if I get nervous when I interview people, but but uh, but Trump, you know, would act just the same way he did when we first went down with him. You know, very direct, very candid, uh, cracking jokes. Uh, you know, a little praise here and there, especially about my wife, um, and. Uh, uh, so, so that was not any different after he became president. I see. And what's the what's the security like around Donald in a situation like that? Because you've been able to just go off to the side, haven't you, and just do this right. interview? Does he sort of have one Secret Service guy that he dictates his will to, or he says we're going over here and doing this now, and then that gets circulated amongst the the, the team, or 
what's the what's the situation? Because it seems like you've kind of bumped into not bumped into, but it sounds like you've you've met him at this this party, this function. It all seems quite relaxed. Yeah. Well, first of all, to get into Mar-a-Lago when he's there, you have to go through uh, a, a Secret Service background check and and uh, go through magnetometers uh, and. Um, and in addition, you know, we were registered in their database or club members are registered. Um, and when it came to actually uh, talking to him, he, he and his table were surrounded by four or five agents. And, uh, and there was also a rope line around the table. And so um, he had to give the word to the agents to to allow us uh, within the rope line and, and to talk to him. And that's, that's the way it works. Um, another time um, we talked to him at the uh, golf club buffet, which is part of Mar-a-Lago in West Palm Beach. And that was last March. And he called, he called us over, but um, he had to give the word again to the agents. Um, there were agents there also to protect his kids who were with him, uh, some of his kids were with him at the table. Uh, and uh, that's that's the way it works. But, but again, t- to get into the golf club, you have to go through uh, metal detectors. They, they check your car for explosives, open the trunk, open the hood, uh, dogs sniff for explosives. So there is a lot of security. And you said that you you had to uh, really kind of pursue, well, not say pursue him, but you tried the 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 obvious or the official channels to get this interview. Yeah. Um, as a journalist and as an investigative journalist, how how long do you try before you say, okay, this isn't happening? What is what's the limit where you go, this I'm not getting this story. Or do you always think, oh, okay, there may be a way around with this guy, or what if I, I whisper in this person's ear, or maybe a, a nicely placed email or a letter here? What's the what's your process? How what are you like a dog with a bone or? Yeah, you know, I I try not to be uh, a pest, and so if I'm trying to get uh, cooperation from <clears throat> a White House uh, PR person, uh, you know, I'll, I'll call or emails. Several times, but I won't. I won't keep it up. But I might, you know, if I'm being rebuffed, I might later come up with a different angle to present uh, as as a subject for an interview. Um, so that's another way around it. But generally, you know, I have the luxury as a as a book author, as opposed to a daily journalist, of burrowing into a subject and getting uh, a lot of cooperation just based on. The fact that I'm interested in how they work, how the FBI does their profiling, how the CIA does their work, our Secret Service, and 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 they appreciate that. They appreciate that I'm not necessarily looking for some expose, but rather to explain how how they actually do their jobs. Um, and so that helps get cooperation and ultimately gets interviews. So I, in the case of the CIA, I've done two or three books on the CIA, and um, they uh, have cooperated and, and uh, have allowed interviews, uh, including uh, of, of the director. Um, and, and part of it is that, part of it is my track record. Even though I, I um, 
exposed, I have exposed institutions um, and uh, some of them I mentioned, um, you know, they, they, I think they respect the fact that I'm honestly trying to do a job of explaining how they operate. When you just said exposing institutions, it made me wonder if, you know, how many enemies do you have? Do you, do you worry about making enemies or uh, is it, or do you find it a regrettable, you know, byproduct of the work that you do? Certainly that goes with the job of what I do. Uh, at the same time, you know, I, I do get a little antsy about one or two people every now and then, not not high-ranking people, but, you know, people who just may be unbalanced or whatever that might uh, <clears throat> might be har- uh, a threat. And so, you know, I try to be careful and um, take certain precautions. Uh, no question about that. Tell me about uh, Biden's skinny dipping. In my Secret Service book, uh, The First Family Detail, I interviewed the agents who were on his detail. And, and they said he generally is considerate, except that he will uh, suddenly decide to go back to Wilmington, his home, sometimes several times a week without giving any advance notice whatsoever to agents so they can never plan their social lives. But uh, there, the female agents on his detail were offended that he would skinny dip both at the pool, uh, at the vice president's residence, and at his home in Wilmington. You know, they signed up to take a bullet for the president, but not to see Joe Biden naked. Uh, <laughs> and that, that story was picked up quite widely. Oh, there are some things they are prepared to do, like give their life for him, but... But see his cock is not one of them. Right. That's that's uh, hilarious. I wonder. I wonder what sort of other embarrassing, very human things, um, Secret Service agents um, are privy to. Because as I understand from interviews I've seen with Michelle Obama, they're just everywhere, and they can't decide to. She couldn't even decide to go for a walk around the grounds without someone needing 15 minutes to arrange it for her. I just wonder, you know, they must see some stuff. They must become very, very, you know, they must start the job off being like, this is the president. This is the leader of the free world. This is, and then by the end of it, they must, they must have a very, very, very intimate understanding of, of these people as human beings. The, The first family is, does have privacy in the residence itself, the Asians, don't go in there, but but they certainly see a lot. They saw Obama smoking secretly, uh, trying to hide it from Michelle, uh, which he t- he finally talked about in his latest book. Um, and uh, so you know habits like that. Uh, not only the president, the vice president, but but the children, uh, cabinet officers. There's a wide range, and I go into a lot of that in in the Secret Service books. Uh, so uh, it's it's it is incredible what they see. Yeah. So uh, s- sticking with Biden, what are your what are your thoughts and feelings on Biden as the what is he the forty sixth president now? Forty six. Forty six. Are you hopeful? Are you are you a fan of his? Um, do you expect him to achieve a lot? What what are your feelings on that? 
I do like the fact that, you know, he, he seems to be a decent person. Uh, he's not uh, engaged in serial lying. Uh, <laughs> I, I, and it seems that he's, he's somewhat moderate. He's, you know, the liberal uh, measures he's taken so far seem to be sort of around the edges, you know, whether he joins the climate accord isn't going to make any big difference to, to this country. In fact, our carbon emissions tied to human activity have been going down, uh, including during the Obama administration. Um, but uh, he's, not, uh, he's not an angel either because in today's Washington Post, uh, one of the lead stories about the uh, COVID vaccines quotes him as saying, you know, that the Trump uh, rollout of vaccines has been a disaster. And then the next paragraph says that he uh, promises to uh, have uh, a million inoculations a day. And the paragraph after that says, however, the Trump uh, administration is already doing that. In fact, in the most, on the most recent day, Thursday, there were over, over a million inoculations. So, you know, he's trying to pull the wool over our eyes. And, and I do see uh, from my uh, Secret Service books that he is certainly capable of covering up things. Um, I found that when he was vice president, he would go back and forth to Wilmington several times a week, as I said, and he would use uh, an Air Force jet. And that was charged to the, to the taxpayer. And so taxpayers. So uh, during uh, several years, it was a million dollars to to fly him back back and forth. And then his people lied about it. They would, you know, they tried to cover up the figures, which I got under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, and then another very very chilling fact, which has not been widely picked up, is that um, when he would go back to Wilmington he would insist that the military aid with the nuclear football remain at least a mile behind uh, from his motorcade. Just to explain for the listener what yeah. the military football is. Right. Military football, you know, there's a lot of misinformation about it, but it, it allows uh, secure communications between the president and the Pentagon in the event of a possible attack by a, a foreign country. And the president verifies or validates his his identity before speaking on these on these secure lines by uh, looking at a card which has uh, codes and he, he carries us with him all the time and he and he enunciates the codes and they that verifies that it really is a president and then the Pentagon tells him what what is going on and he may only have a five or 10 minutes to make a decision whether to do a counterattack. And if so, how how broad should this counterattack be? Um, and yet, uh, Biden would insist that the military aid remain a mile behind, which meant mm-hmm. that even if there's no traffic, there would not be time to launch a counterattack if Obama had been taken out first, which certainly would be possible. And the reason was that he wanted to preserve this image as regular Joe, a man of the working people. He want to have a long motorcade, which is normal, you know, normally maybe 25 cars. And so he wanted the military to stay behind. And what could be more 
shocking than that. Take, take you know, putting all of all of us at risk. Uh, and uh, uh, it's a mystery to me why that hasn't been picked up, but I think it eventually will be. Fascinating stuff. You certainly know a lot. You know an awful lot. I do, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> do you have any advice for uh, aspiring investigative journalists? What What would you say to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps and do the kind of work that you've done? I think, you know, first be objective because uh, you want to choose subjects uh, that are real valid exposés and not, not some kind of political hit piece. Um, and secondly, uh, show that you really are interested in how this institution or this person operates and uh, both the good and the bad. And uh, study, study the, uh, the subject so that you are well prepared when you do interview people. That, those are some of the basics. Proper planning and preparation prevents piss poor performance. Right. <laughs> um, thank you very much for your time. It's been really good. Um, I've been watching interviews with you on YouTube all day. Wow. Uh, leading up to this, so I feel like I've been listening to. I have. I've been listening to you all day. But it was nice to finally actually have my own conversation uh, uh, with you. Um, you did so, a great uh, job. I really appreciate it. Thank you very I, much. I conducted this. One more question for you. What is the book that you will, you're writing next, or what is the book you would like to write next if you're not already doing it? I am looking for tips. I, uh, I have chosen a new subject. Uh, it, it becomes more and more difficult because so much does appear in the papers all the time, uh, and uh, so many secrets are out there, but, but uh, it's the right subject comes up I'll, I'll jump on it aliens ronald find us the aliens if anyone can do it it's you all right get in that role big thank you to this week's guest ronald kessler if you want to check out his books and his website we will leave links to them in the show notes description please make sure you like subscribe leave a review on apple podcasts for this pod if you can please tell a friend that really helps if you want to follow the podcast on instagram and twitter the handle is at the giant pod my instagram is andy underscore s1s uh, this podcast was produced by the sneaky surreptitious harry williams thanks again for listening we will see you next week on the giant pod